Welcome back to The Consequences Podcast with Paul McNulty and Sean McCreevy. To put the first 10cc album into some kind of context, um, the four musicians had been working together for some time already. Of course, they had their wonderful resource, their, their own studio, Strawberry, in Stockport, Manchester. Um, according to Graham Gorman and perhaps um, the others, it was some time after working on the first Neil Sedaka album, Solitaire, that they suddenly realised um, they should take things a bit more seriously and be not just uh, an in-house group of musicians, but, but a band. In fact, I believe it was Neil Sedaka himself who actually told them that. He said, look, you guys are great. You should do something more serious than just um, you know, working on whatever comes the way of the studio as it were so as far as we know they they changed uh, their mode of operation overnight and and started working seriously the first track that they recorded with this new mindset was waterfall um, <clears throat> which um, has a kev godly lead vocal for years i thought that was eric singing but it, it, it is Kev singing lead. It's definitely on, Kev. Uh, which maybe gives some indication of how seriously they were taking it, because although there was no de facto lead vocalist, um, I would have thought they there was a kind of implicit agreement, at least initially, that Kevin had the best voice, um, best traditional voice, one would, one would have thought. So they recorded this, this track. Gonna meet you on the corner Take you out of town Out to where the grass is greener And no one can be found Gonna be there in the morning You mentioned already it's a, it's a Stuart Goldman composition. Yeah. That, that's interesting. Um, in fact, it was the what, the first Stuart Gorman composition. Well, Eric was new to songwriting, wasn't he? Not entirely. As one of our friends for, of the podcast pointed out, he had written quite a number of songs with the Mindbenders. Okay. Uh, latterly. And he had uh, um, contributed quite a few songs to the Hot Legs album. I right. think maybe right. his, con- his contributions are sort of uh, overlooked slightly because you see that credit... Uh, godly cream Stuart, and you perhaps you know naively assume that it's a godly and cream song with a few bits of eric's yeah. tacked on but i don't know whether that's fair so we don't really know um you know proportionally he, he may have been contributing more than than we're aware of but as i think waterfall was the first Stuart goldman song right somebody will correct us if if we're wrong and they thought pretty highly of this song Eric had uh, connections with various people in the record industry well they all did of course and he hawked this song um, to Apple the Beatles Mm. um, publishers and there was apparently some interest but I mean Apple was in serious disarray um, by 1972 when they were trying to hawk this around in fact it was in the process of dissolving really along with Waterfall which they considered would be a potential A-side. They recorded uh, Kevin Lowell's Donna, a 50s pastiche, initially earmarked as as a B-side. But they quickly realised that 
it was actually the most commercial of the two. And, mm. of course, it soon came to the attention of Jonathan King, who instantly picked it out as a hit and uh, persuaded them to, to swap the sides, and that, and that became the A-side of their, their first 10cc single. And it's really interesting, isn't it, that, that their, their potential as a band, their future as a band, pivoted on that axis between... Um, a relatively, in my opinion, a relatively pedestrian song, uh, Waterfall, even though I, I love the sound of it, it's a beautifully recorded tune, mm. very interesting production, that wonderful backwards guitar. <laughs> sort of very grown up kind of almost AOR sound yeah. to a novelty hit I mean that moment of choosing that direction for that kind of public debut was uh, incredibly portentous wasn't it exactly you hit the nail on the head it completely um, defined the course or the, of their early career for mm. sure maybe one, one could say their entire career also put Godling Cream right back in the spotlight as the, as the prime writers that mm. had other ramifications. Yeah, well, I, I love Waterfall. I think it's a terrific song as well as performance. Um, it's got a beautiful sound. It, it, yeah, America. It sounds American. Would have fit in with the band America. Yeah, Crosby, uh, Stills, Nash and Young. It's got that kind of feel. West Coast kind of sound. The harmony. I think that that could have really made it on AM radio. Yeah. yeah. FM radio was it? I beg your pardon. In, yeah. in America, and a great vocal from Kev as well. Yeah, well, from from all of the guys who were singing, I, I guess that's three part harmony in, mm. in the chorus, as you say, the the innovative use of backwards guitar, um, and a lovely fade out. Yeah. Um, but um, it's true that Donna is even more striking, I guess. Absolutely. Whether you whether you love it or hate it, I love it. I love it. Always have done. Um, there's such humour and sparkle uh, from you know from the, the the very first moment. I think it's absolutely beautiful melody as well. Mm. Um, often criticised for taking its first few notes and from "Oh Darling" by the Beatles, which yeah. is undoubtedly true. But then it goes off in a different direction. Yeah, and uh, just love the sound oh, of it. Darling, you made me stay. Um, Stuart gave his uh, I think he owns a lot of these master tapes and he gave them to the the, the excellent uh, show the record producers if any of you haven't heard that it's a BBC production mm. uh, is it Richard Allenson and Steve Levine providing the kind of technical yeah. insight fantastic uh, wor worth listening to that certainly and that shows um, how they operated uh, basically with Eric in the control room producing while the other three would put down a backing track uh, often without bass so the backing track for Donna was Kev on drums and uh, Graham and Lol on guitars and I think they, they kept pretty much of that arrangement initially and um, worked so brilliantly yeah and uh, one of the things that I, I wanted to highlight straight away 
with the with, with the debut album and and everything else that came after it, but particularly that album, I think it's easy to overlook just how fresh uh, the production was on it. When you when you look at some of the pop that was happening at the time, you've got the uh, I suppose the, the the glam thing. You've got a, a lot of hits coming out of the the studio from from producers like Mickey Most. The production was sort of cramped and muddy. Lead vocals were sort of buried in the mix. But here comes um, a beautifully recorded, beautifully produced uh, clutch of songs where the vocals are impossibly high in the mix. Wonderfully so. Yeah. Um, the production is sharp and clear. The drums, you know, Eric Stewart's always said, you know, he, he sucked the oxygen out of the, 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 the miking of the drum kit. Yes. Um, so the, the, the mics were literally a micron away from the drum skins. You felt like you were inside the kit. It, or definitely. sitting at the kit. But it, it wasn't sort of muddy and, and like Tupperware lids that you get on, say, early Genesis or early Yes or something. This was really, really dynamic, where the, the kick drum is really banging through, the bass is, is really up in the mix. So everything is in your face and clear. And um, I think it's one of the reasons why their records sound so good and so fresh now, even though this, stylistically they're, um, quite a lot of it is in the 50s and 60s, the production makes the records uh, a lot fresher sounding and a lot less dated, simply because it's just so clear, so sharp, so pristine. I mean, you think of the work that people like Richard Carpenter did, um, in the 70s with, with their records, ABBA, for example, the production is so good. It's reminiscent of, of albums like Holland by the Beach Boys, mm -hmm. where you've got almost no uh, reverb or effects on a lot of the instruments or, or voices. So you're getting pretty much the, the dry signal of what goes into the desk. And that creates a, a very, very fresh sound that, that transcends any kind of trends. Uh, and makes the music, I think the legacy lasts a lot longer because of that reason. I might be wrong, but um, I, I think it, it stands up. And when they did add effects in, uh, because they were working with limitations track-wise, they had to paste those effects right in, didn't they? They weren't able to yeah. add them in later. So That's they it. really had to map out what they were going to do with a track. I mean, I think I'm right in saying... At this stage, Strawberry was 8-track, and it didn't go 16-track until, I think the Dean and I was the first 16-track recording yeah, on so the new desk. Yeah, so in the mid-70s it was 16-track, yeah. wasn't it? so really the inventiveness here, um, amazing. And often they were flying by the seat of their pants because, the, you know, they were having to record just at the moment, you know, after they'd already recorded something else on the same <laughs> track. So one slip of the the finger and you'd erase you know a huge amount of work definitely um, and they must have been knackered and, and strawberry at that time was running 24 hours a day wasn't it yeah it was still um very very busy yeah uh, all sorts of clients coming coming into the studio 
Um, but you know, at last we see that the the four musicians were were striving to to make something of worth on in their own name. Definitely. One of the things that really fascinates me about the four albums by by the four piece Ten CC is just looking at the at the the narrative arc, the the graph, if you like, of the songwriting teams, um, who features more prominently, for example, who um, who might sort of develop and take over in in later times, and we'll come on into our, our sort of subsequent podcasts about the other albums to see, for example, how Eric enters the fold as uh, as it turns out the chief protagonist of of their hit making. Whereas on this first album, he doesn't have a hand in any of the hits. They are all penned by Kev and Lowell. Um, obviously, a couple with the, you know with, with the pen of, of Graham as well in there. But this is very much Godly and Cream to the fore, isn't it? As the as the songwriting powerhouse. Yeah, wouldn't right. you say? Yeah, very much so. They had a lot of experience as songwriters by this time. Those yeah. two. I mean, they hadn't. Well. They'd had the um, the one-off hit, of course, Neanderthal Man. Yeah, but which... they'd had dozens of singles, hadn't they, under different yeah, pseudonyms? Yeah, and we're going to look at uh, that fascinating prehistory <laughs> in another episode or episodes. I find it very hard to get my head around it, actually. Yeah, there are so many incarnations, aren't there? Exactly, exactly. But this is um, this is an interesting one. I've, what I've done for, for in terms of the songwriting credits, <clears throat> what I've done is is included the B-sides in with the. Uh, with the, the ten tracks, okay, uh, and it's it's really interesting to see that that Eric and Graham wrote three of the songs that would would eventually be B sides. Waterfall, Hot Sun Rock, Be in My Bonnet were all uh, Eric and and, and Graham. Uh, Eric also collaborated with Lol on four percent of something, and that ups. Stuart and uh, Eric and Graham's involvement in the songwriting here. But if we just take the album uh, as an entity, um, Kevin Lowell wrote almost every track, um, sometimes aided by Graham on, on Johnny Don't Dip, for example. Sand in My Face. <coughs> and Rubber Bullets. And Rubber Bullets, of course. Significantly. So that was a, that was a very core songwriting team on the first album. It doesn't feature so much on, on later albums, which is interesting. Mm. It tends more, it tends to polarise slightly to Kevin Lowell writing on their own. Um, Godly and Cream have got three tracks that they wrote uh, just as a duo. Um, and Eric and, and Graham have five songs across the, the whole spectrum of 14 songs. And then we have a, a few songwriter combinations that just have one one song each, um, them collaborating on, on, as a as a foursome on uh, on one of the tracks, which we'll come on to later, obviously, um, and a cream Stewart, and that's a that for me is a very interesting songwriting partnership. Is that the four percent of something in this batch of songs, the cream Stewart? Yes, it is, um, and it it's interesting that that when cream Stewart compositions turn up on albums, very often they're of, of a style, mm. very uh, sort of forceful, rocky, slightly aggressive. And hits, right? Because um, well, silly, si love. silly Love and Life is a Minestrone. Absolutely. Um, and 
One combination that I think only turned up on one album ever, I think, um, produced one of my very favourite 10cc songs, um, the Godly Cream Stewart combination. Uh, and we'll come on perhaps towards the end of this podcast uh, as we wax lyrical about that particular track. Um, I find this, this whole thing really, really interesting and, and I love to watch as an outside observer, watch the, the dynamics of the, the songwriting partnerships in this band. Yeah, I think maybe we can get too bogged down with what's written down because, as is well known, mm. all four of them, when they were working at, at their best, which they were pretty much throughout this run of four albums, really, they were all contributing hugely, even when their name wasn't on the credit. Yeah. I mean, that goes without saying for I'm Not In Love, which really, as a record, is as much owes as much to Lowell and Kevin's contributions as it does to the writing yeah. team of, of, of uh, Eric and, and That's Graham. right, it was like a magical cocktail, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. And it had to be the four of them to, to, to exist in that, in that magical uh, state. Yeah, and from what we know, it was like a laboratory. They, they had unlimited, you know, this was their studio. Uh, I know that we've talked about there was limitations in that other people were using the studio, but also it was theirs and they would supposedly go off in a room and write mm. uh, in various combinations and then come back. Graham Gorman says in that uh, great BBC4 documentary, doesn't it? He'd come back as if we've got one, you know, and then we've got one. So whoever came back first got a chance to, to work <laughs> on the song. Sounds, you know, you, their excitement is still palpable all these years later at what, at what, they, were, what they were coming up with. Sure. I agree, and it's it's wonderful hearing them sharing lead vocals all the time. You, you'd have a little Eric bit, and then you'd have Kev bit, and all mm. the rest of it. Um, that clearly they're just launching into these songs with gusto and and fun, a sense of uh, excitement. It's wonderful to hear, but uh, very interesting for me that that Lol is very much the lead singer on the first album, isn't it? Yeah, because up until this point. Uh, the Hot Legs material and the sort of um, singles scattered hither and thither about the discography. It was mainly Kev who sang most of the lead vocals on, on those songs, mm. uh, some Eric. And Lowell, with this, you know, great distinctive voice, it w perhaps, Lee, perhaps it wouldn't have thought it was commercial. But maybe because Donna was such... Well, Don, because Donna was a big hit, mm. he, he really, you know carries on as lead vocalist initially, doesn't he? Yeah. Hello, darling. Yes, I love you, darling. Yes, I love you. He sings lead vocals on Johnny, Sand in, in My Face, Donna, Dean and I, Rubber Bullets, Hospital Song. That's, you know, that's the lion's share. Yeah, yeah. And certainly all the singles. Yeah. Yeah, why don't we um, why don't we have a look first, Paul, at the the Godly Cream Goldman songs? Okay, perhaps as the uh, the more commercial team uh, in terms of, of, of this album. Um, Johnny, don't do it. A good good opener, do you think?
Um, I'm not sure. I mean, important to remember that Johnny Don't Do It was a follow-up to Donna Mm. and was a flop. And significantly here, they were perhaps following a formula, you know, that the 50s pastiche had been had been a hit. And they went with something quite similar. For them, it was actually quite, you know, to follow something mm. in a similar manner. Was out un- of character. Un- out of character. And probably by second-guessing themselves a bit too much, they, they, they wrote themselves into a corner. I think they were also really unlucky that Leader of the Pack was re-released and was a chart hit right around the same time mm. um, I mean it's a very clever song um, I like the middle eight you know where, where Kev takes over with his kind of macho scary voice yeah. I, I really like that, that that visual teen drama section you know with the, with the crash and so on I, I yeah. really like that oh, it's, 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 yeah it's great oh, Johnny went with his girlfriend on the back seat looking for some action and they found it down the back street suddenly a truck pulled out he tried to step on the brake um based around i guess i haven't ever, ever really looked at it closely it's based around a do what progression is it the main yeah the main thing and and, and again it's a lot of the um, of Kevin Lowell's songs on the album have that kind of 12-8 ding 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 gat ding 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 oh ding, yeah kind of yeah right like it. Donna yeah. yeah Unchained Melody uh, that that kind of very 50s uh, rhythm that we hear in Cool 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 in the, in the morning hmm. uh, Sail on Sailor and songs like that very very 50s um, and of course the lyrics are very influenced by the 1950s and that seems to be a, a recurrent theme in particularly Lowell's songwriting, I think. Mm, or even um, further back, because he's going back to the 30s and 40s, yeah. 20s, Gershwin, Rogers Hammerstein. That's it. And um, the 50s was was very much a rich theme for, for bands in the early, mid-70s. Yes. When you think of bands like um, the Rubettes, um, I mean, later, Shwaddy Waddy and so on, the 50s was massive in the charts. Yeah. Uh, so that influence, a bit of doo-wop there. Yeah, there was a real revival. And perhaps 10CC helped to instigate that, because Donna was one of the first of those, wasn't it? I can't think of any others. Um, I mean, we're talking, what, Susie Quattro, that was 73. Yeah. Gary Glitter, I suppose. The, Even The Sweet. Yeah. but they, they Mud. But Sweet... Wasn't it wasn't so much your kind of fifties sound at least initially? But the rhythms were, and Mickey okay. Miss, Mickey Most was using an awful lot of that shuffle, um, that uh, compound time, you right? Know, four four, but with triplets that, that make it go to dum dum bidum 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 bidum. That was that was everywhere. So Ten CC yeah, might might well have have been on the forefront of of that wave to kind of reinvent fifties pop. You know, I don't, this is just an aside about Donna. I don't know whether anybody remembers this, but I was, I remember I was going in a bus to school and the radio was on. Um, It must have been when Donna was a hit and the Osmonds were also over. And somebody, it may have been like uh, even somebody phoning in or or maybe it was the Osmonds themselves or some band and they turned Donna into Donny. Uh, I remember that. Really? Clearly. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I, goodness. I'm sure, I don't imagine that. Oh, Donnie. 
but I don't know where that comes from. But I'm not sure if I, yeah, if that's an exciting prospect for me to hunt down for <clears throat> or something I'll just avoid. And then there was an advert, do you remember it, 10 or 15 years ago? Probably more, where there was just the rotating doner kebab <laughs> and the soundtrack was, you guessed it. Oh, no, oh doner. Yeah, you remember that? No, I don't. <clears throat> I'd love more, to have seen that. A few more pennies in the pocket for yeah, Kevin Lowell then. definitely. But yeah, the, the, the 50s thing is, is, um, is a really fun element of uh, the first album, I think. And I was thinking the other day that so many of the Godling Cream tunes, or tunes with, with Godling Cream's influence uh, as songwriters, they, they play, to me, like those wonderful 50s and 60s uh, cartoon strips, the comics, right? Uh, that uh, mainly teenage girls would be buying in the States, where there's the, the kind of um, the minutiae of, of romantic trauma, you know. <laughs> oh, he's, he didn't look at me in school today. And you get a, a close-up of the girl's face with a little tear yeah. rolling down the corner of her eye. Thanks. To me, these songs play like those those comic strips. Well, it's that visual element already there in in Kevin Lowell's work, particularly which manifests itself ultimately in consequences. Yeah, and it's because maybe, or maybe it's because the songs are broken up into little sections, discrete sections. So yes, you can picture a a particular scene where you, you've got a you've got a close up on somebody's face or something like that. Yeah, always jumping in. Usually, it kind of cuts from the the, the Lowell verses into uh, a very, very different flavour at Kev singing a middle eight, isn't yeah. it, really? Like in, in, in Johnny Don't Do It, you, you get into that. It's almost like a news reporter uh, talking about the uh, about Johnny's crash. It's terrific. I, I, I really like that. And it's production-wise, it's a signature tune in many ways because you've got the, the appearance of, of Lowell and Eric uh, harmonising their guitar parts. Mm. And that happens on so many 10cc tunes. In Thin Lizzy style, there were another band doing it around the same time as 10cc. Right. Um, very unusual to have harmonised guitar solos, but it works tremendously well. And there's very much a distinctive guitar sound uh, that, that, that is born on this album. Sure, and wasn't that in part, though, I'm thinking particularly about the Rubber Bullet solo, but there may be other instances where it's recorded at half speed and then played back at double speed? That's definitely true of Speed Kills. Right, um, and, and rubber bullets. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah I, I didn't know that, but I can, I can absolutely <clears> hear that. Uh, and the sound is so distinctive. Um, I, I might have read it somewhere, uh, but it's certainly to my ears, it's similar to the, the guitar sound that Tony Peluso and Richard Carpenter achieved on Goodbye to Love, yeah. where the guitar is just is plugged in directly to the desk without a guitar amp.
I think what, what Lol and Eric are doing here is that they've got their guitars going through their fuzz boxes uh, or, or whatever, whatever basic effects they were using uh, and bypassing guitar amps. And you get this very, very dry, shrill um, sound that is uniquely 10cc. Many people don't like it. But I, I've, I've grown to absolutely It's quite abrasive. And when it you is. add that in with Lowell's lead, which is also quite abrasive, it, that might be why it's, some people find it grating. Yeah. And, and possibly why, interestingly, when you look on Spotify, can you, can you guess what five tracks come up as the most oh. often downloaded 10cc songs? Okay, well, it must be I'm Not In Love in the number one slots. Yeah. Things We Do For Love, Dread yeah. Doc Holiday. Yeah. Give me the other two. Give me a couple of other Eric and Graham songs. Uh, Good Morning Judge. Yeah. Really? That's in the top five? It is. So the top five are all Stuart Goldman. Oh. And they don't feature particularly the abrasive uh, guitar sound. Right. So maybe uh, over the course of, of history, in the future, the, um, you know, the wacky abrasive 10cc will kind of fade from... From public consumption, I don't know. Mm, let hope not, but no. interesting. Thought. Yeah, so the softer 10cc d- seems to have lasted uh, lasted uh, longer. Yeah, there's um, Johnny. Don't do it. Is the, the the first example I know of Kevin Lowell's songwriting that demonstrates a little trick that they use on a few numbers, and uh, it's um, throwback to. Uh, doing my French degree, it's nice uh, that I can actually put my, my degree to, to some use from time <laughs> to time. It's only taken about 30 years. They use a technique, Paul, called enjambement, uh, enjambement, we say in, okay. in, 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 in English, where at the end of, of a line of the lyric, they don't finish on the final word. The, the, the final word of the, of the phrase or sentence is carried over to the next line mm-hmm. and they do it on a few numbers and, and in Johnny Don't Do It uh, one example is uh, Johnny went riding with his girlfriend on the back seat yeah um, and similarly and they found it down a back street and there's, there's at least two other songs I can think of that that Kevin Law used exactly the same technique somewhere in Hollywood Mm-hmm. And punch bag from okay. from the the L album. Right. Can, can you think what um, part of somewhere in Hollywood I'm thinking of? Uh, they do a double one, and it's it's wonderful. It, it it it's it's used as a technique to create tension in in poetry to create tension and a sense of release and relief when that when that the the key word kind of punches in at the start of the next line. Norman Mailer. Yeah, it's to- about him. Um, he's dangerous. Okay, Lee, close. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, dangerous comes on the beat. Yeah. That should be the the final word of the phrase. Right. But then they add a Lee, and then it's still hanging over for the next line. Close was oh, the weather, which is you know we'll we'll come on to talk about that song in the, in the next podcast. But uh, and in uh, in Punchbag, uh, they have. The, exactly the same technique where they're talking about the polythene bag. Oh yeah, polythene bag treatment. Yeah, treatment comes as, as uh, yeah. And it's a very, very interesting technique. I can't think of any other pop groups who, who use it. Right. Uh, it's clever wordplay and it just, 
it takes it away from any kind of blandness. <laughs> and maybe it's one of the reasons that they're, they're, they're so often accused of being a bit clever, clever, aren't they, with their lyrics? Well, yeah, but that's not even wordplay, is it? It's actually sort of playing with the, the structure of the music as much as, the, as, yeah. the, as, the, as just kind of making puns and stuff. So, yeah, yeah, definitely. So I hope you didn't mind me throwing that in, Paul. No, what was that word again? Uh, enjambement. Okay. Or enjambment. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I, I can't even think what it, what it literally means, kind of legiment. Someone will be able to tell us. Sand in My Face does, a, a, I think, a similar storytelling job to Johnny Don't Do It. And it, it has the same basic kind of binary structure where you've got the, the lol verses and, um, and the Kev middle eight. But I, I really, I, I adore Sand in My Face. It's one of my favourite tracks on, yeah, the, on the album. Yeah, not, not one of my absolute favourites. I sometimes, you know, the wordplay and just... It verges on silly sometimes. It, it, it doesn't emotionally resonate. I mean, I'm, not, I'm, I'm sure that song isn't supposed to. No, but isn't it just a bit of comedy? <laughs> yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I'm glad you mentioned that next because um, uh, I'm trying to get some documentation about the order in which these songs were recorded. Okay, which, that'd be interesting. Uh, which I don't think there is any. Uh, but um, it would be nice to know because I, I do know that certainly this early on, they weren't really thinking, although this, these batch of songs were recorded very quickly, they weren't really thinking about an album's worth of, so of songs at one go. They were thinking about each song at a time, yeah. almost like ABBA, who had this incredible uh, technique where they would just record a song from start to finish and then move on to the next mm. one. Well, I think, as far as we know, 10 TC were doing the same thing. So I think after... Um, <clears throat> Waterfall and Donna. I'm not sure whether Johnny Don't Do It came next or Sand in My Face did, but but that batch of songs were all recorded first, as far as I know. Okay, so that's that, quite significant. Yeah, absolutely, that, 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 and that makes sense to me. Okay, I love the way that the action goes. It, there's a wonderful little twist when you've got um, you know sort of verse two, and you, that mother kicks Sand in his face. Now let you tell me about Alex. He's got hands like hams. Knees like trees, and then a lovely key change: two hundred pounds of surfboard Hercules into the obvious Beach Boys reference, yeah. and then you've got a kind of surfer girl style middle eight, Mr. Atlas. Won't you bring her on back to me? Again, sung by Kev. I've always adored that middle section. I think it's fun, as a you know massive Beach Boys. Yeah, fan. I think that's my favourite section. It's really, really, really pretty, isn't it? Melodically, it really is. He's got hands like hands. Hands like hands. Knees like trees. He's like trees. Eric 
Rick's influence is, uh, is very prominent on this song as well. Um, you know, he sings the dynamic tension. Oh, yeah. And also there's that, that fabulous acoustic guitar played, I think, with a slide. Like a, like a dobro mm -hmm. kind of sound. Yeah, yeah. but it Fantastic. is an acoustic guitar. Yeah. And there's a lot of slide guitar on the record. Yeah. Um, almost like Eric's got, there's a country or, or rhythm and blues influence coming in on the tracks. Mm. Sorry to hear you're not such a big fan of sound in my face, Paul. I've always absolutely loved it. But uh, some of the other Godly and Cream numbers are, are amazing, aren't well, they? Well, let's talk about the Dean and I, oh. which, which is uh, possibly the, uh, one of the greatest 10cc song. There, there, there might be some as good. There's none better. I think it's the most creative of their, songwriting-wise, the most creative of their singles. Yeah, I mean, I for okay, a lot of Godly and Cream songs go through lots of different movements, and there's usually a bit in there that maybe I'm not so keen on. But from start to finish, mm -hmm. it's so fantastic, and the, the, you know that the, just the tune and the energy, oh. um, and it's a very un, very unusual subject matter. It's um, the guy's fallen out of love, presumably with it with his life, as he uh, sorry with his with his wife, hmm. a Freudian slip, as he um, as he looks back on his life with his kids in tow, maybe, um, and. But it's somehow kind, isn't it? E even though it's mm. uh, it, it, they do a lot of pretty dark satire, but this is a, a kind, kinder kind of song. Definitely, um, it's a nostalgic tune, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Have you noticed the key word, the consequence, should be at a very um, important <laughs> of part course. of the song? Yeah. I mean, you know, that, I don't see how that could have anything to do with the eventual album, but it's it always, does for us, Paul. It yeah, does it's always for struck us. how it's right in there, you know. No, it's, it's brilliant. I love it. Moves in in so many directions musically. Uh, it goes all over the place in terms of structure and chords and melody. There's mm. so much, everything's wonderfully catchy. Uh, the great intro, nice to hear Graham singing so prominently on the intro. Yeah, yeah. Love that, uh, and again, great lead vocal from Lol, and the inevitable, uh, fantastic middle eight sung by Kev, which uh, again is is a straight out of the the, the Brian Wilson back catalogue. Yeah, um, they were dating in the park. They were smooching in the dark. I mean, that section is amazing. Well, and then then I kissed her. I mean, that's a direct reference, <laughs> even with the kind of the, the rhythmic elements of the of the. Of the um, yes, because you got the call and response. Woo! Yeah, haven't you yeah. the falsetto going on there? Hey, says one kiss and I was heaven bound. Now who would have guessed Mrs. Paradise Lost could be found? But in the eyes of the dean, his daughter was do what she shouldn't order. But a man's gotta do what a man's gotta do. The consequence should be church bells, we swells the dean's daughter and me. They were dating in the park, they were smooching in the dark of a doorway for two. She whispered, I love you. Ooh, you know I never felt this way 
Have you heard the the backing track, which was again uh, uh, repeating myself here, but I would recommend if if you can find it somewhere that if anybody's interested, you listen to this record producers uh, episode, which featured almost all of the instrumental track. The thing that struck Brilliant. me, yeah, the thing that struck me there before they added vocals, it was really strongly reggae. It's a gonna real reggae feel to it, which is somehow submerged when the vocals are put on top, and mm. that sort of points forward to a lot of later. Um, well, it becomes the default position of of, of late uh, late ten CC, yeah, doesn't it? Maybe not always a good idea, mm. but we're getting ahead of ourselves. They did it well once. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Dreadlock holiday. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But this how interesting. I yeah. don't I don't get that from the track. I, I suppose no. because the the vocals dominate so much. Yeah, don't you they? don't get it. But you, again, you can see how clearly the thing was mapped out. Um, the recent um, exhibition at uh, Stockport Museum. Um, about 10cc or about Strawberry Studios but largely about 10cc um, the best thing there apart from Eric Stewart's uh, Gibson guitar which was the hmm. great exhibit um, was this film that they unearthed which I think was made for a, a children's education film um, of the guys and Peter Tattershall at the board recording the Dean and I have you seen that? no Oh, um, oh, crikey, I need to see that. Well, I think the audio of it is on the Tenology box, but um, it's, it's actually stunning. Uh, um, I think it's a kind of recreation. I don't think they're actually recording it. Mm. It looks a little bit staged, but even so, you can, uh, you know, they're each, it's, it's great piece of, uh, great piece of uh, film and just from my point of view, it happens to be them recording their best ever song. So it's like, <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, I watched that on a loop at the, the museum and uh, oh, I, I, hope that, I hope that film is, is put into a wider circulation at some yeah. stage. Oh, definitely, definitely. With three big hits behind them, 10CC settled down in the Strawberry Studios at Stockport to start work on a new single. First, a run-through. They already have some idea about the kind of sound they want, but initially each member wants to build up an atmosphere that will allow their considerable musical talents to combine and develop. Making a tape takes time, energy and terrific concentration. It's not unknown for the group to reject a whole day's material, nor for an album track to take three weeks to produce. But in their philosophy, perfection is only just sufficient. But there are so many interesting moments and episodes, uh, you know, from a film point of view. There are so many wonderful cuts in this song. Um, you know, when you think they've they've expended all the musical ideas you could possibly squeeze into a three-minute song, you, you get that lovely kind of second middle eight, don't you? Now the paint is peeling when the chips are down. Yeah. Lovely. Um, with the, the signature double-tracked vocals that are so prominent on the record. Yeah. They don't use them in later... 10cc material so often, but most of the lead vocals on this record are double-tracked in, in Beach Boys fashion, yes. which makes them absolutely sparkle oh, and Oh, it makes it shimmer. cut. Uh, um, yeah. Going back once again to this record producer's uh, excerpt, you, you do hear, I think you hear a single-tracked lull, and then you hear him double-tracked. Makes I, a big difference, doesn't it? But in the eyes of the Dean, his daughter was doing what she shouldn't have order. But a man's gotta do what a man's gotta do. The consequence should be. 
But on this side of the glass, everything is audible. And singing means everybody sings. And this was, as we've just said, was the first 16-track recording at Strawberry, or the first 16-track recording that 10CC did. Right. And it enabled them to have much more control over the elements of the song. Yeah. So that it's really vibrant, this song, you know, more vibrant than the, the, the songs they had recently recorded, I think. Yeah. Um, some really, really grown-up chord progressions going on. I mean, even just the... Here goes round around, round around, yeah. around around, around around, around. Yeah, that's just like major chords going up, is it? Or is it? Is it like just? Going? I think I can hear some diminished stuff going on there, but it, oh, yeah, it, may, right. it may well be. Yeah, it may well be just be just shifting yeah. a semitone up, semitone up. Right. Um, Beautiful backing vocals. How was it a hit? Because it's, I mean, it's a catchy well, yeah, tune, it's a, but but it's there's a lot going on. Well, that's why it was a hit. It's a beautiful tune. Um, the main, you know, the main section, the, the the first and the second verse, which is then reprised, you know, as a final verse. Yeah. That is such a wonderful melody, um, and they even man managed to wring something new out of it. You know, my ship came in with a cargo of dollars. That's a new melody. Yeah. On top of all, an already great tune, mm. and then the, the bam, you know. Rolling in dollars, rolling in dollars. I mean, you know. Yeah, and a proper ending. You know, no, um, you know, redundant fade out. That's it. How, long, how long is it? Is that three minutes? Is I, it? I don't it's know. It's not overly long, is it's it? It's not overly long, um, but it, it, it's just absolutely marvellous. It's the, it's probably the definition of the of the teenage symphony. Yeah. The teenage um, symphony to God that Brian Wilson was trying to write with Smile. That's right, uh, but this is an actual teenage symphony, yeah. um, utter pop perfection. Before we leave, uh, uh, Dean and I, we should say uh, it's Graham Goldman's favourite 10CC song, which is and Eric's least favourite. I think. Okay, isn't it? well that's interesting. Yeah, he he. he on the uh, documentary, he says he hated the song. Yeah, we can't get you can't get your head around what's going on with these guys because Eric hates <laughs> Dean and I, Kevin hates the things we do for love and people in love. Yeah, well, okay, that one. But I mean, you know, Dean yeah, and I, I mean, the things we do for love. They're talking about the, the around the best songs of their <laughs> career. Thank God, no that, doubt. Well, thank God the other ones, you know, were strong enough to steamroller it through. I know, I know, and I've I can kind of see what Eric's saying about. Uh, the Dean and I being a bit too South Pacific, yeah, he hated that. particularly in the sort of he says one kiss and I was heaven about that, you know, those kind of almost overly sugary old fashioned lyrics. Yeah. But I think there's so much invention going on uh, melodically. Well, again, he was able to work at, for the team here, wasn't he? And he added in that guitar. Mm. Yeah. That was him, you know. Adding some balls to it, I think, as he as he. Yeah, it's it. a great call and response to and creates a hook, doesn't it? Good though. Rather than sulking in the corner, he said, "Right, how can I make this better?" And yeah. that's when these guys are working together. That's always what they did. How can we make this better? Yeah. Which you, you've got to admire that approach. Fantastic. Really, it is just a, a, a fantastic collaboration machine um, on every front. You know, from the lyrical, musical production ideas. Yeah. Fabulous. In we could do effect. a whole podcast on Dean and I here. We, 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 this, right? Well, we did. We did like 10 episodes on consequences <laughs> or something. So, And uh, 
got to number 10 in the charts which is it's not bad at all well appropriate given it's uh, given the name of the band and that's it's right. a perfect 10 so i think that's <laughs> it's not a number one record because it's too inventive yeah um, it, it's too varied um yeah it, it's hard work for a lot of uh, you know think of a, a teenager listening to the radio it's not it's not the kind of thing that they would normally just have no. on repeat on their little dance set. No. But a much bigger hit, of course, was uh, another Godling Cream tune that, that had um, Graham's involvement as songwriter, Rubber Bullets. Oh, of course. Absolutely key single because um, it was their third single and the second had been a flop, mm. and they were used to being one-hit wonders. So they, they, there was a lot riding on the success of Rubber Bullets. Uh, I know Graham Goldman is intensely proud that it went to number one because despite all the large, you know, and numerous hits he'd already written, this was the first time he'd had a hand in a number one record, which uh, he's mentioned a couple of times. Yeah big achievement for him and, and for all the band and, and for mm. the Godly and Cream writing access, of course, that came up with the majority of the song. I think Graham added the middle eight, the slow section. Sergeant Baker started talking that bit. Sergeant Baker started talking with a bullhorn in his hand. He was cool, he was clear, he was always in command. He said, Padre, Padre, you talk to your boys. Trust in me. God will come to set you free. Yeah, I, I, again, I love that bit. Uh, and it fits structurally, doesn't it, with so many of the other songs on the on the album? Where yeah, fifties. Yeah, fifties. It's a slow down. It's a cut to Kev singing. Yeah, and and with the Beach Boys influence. Yeah, um, very much the sort of formula. Um, it's very odd to be talking about a formula when it comes to 10cc, mm. but I think there definitely was some formula going on here. But I think it's such a driving track. It's it's arresting. It's loud. It's in your face. Uh, catchy as hell mm. uh, and so much going on you've got the, the, the harmonised guitar solos um, a brilliant catchy chorus and a bit of controversy as well yeah that's right it was initially banned wasn't it was it banned because of the reference to rubber bullets and the I've, I've read it so many times right um, yeah. so there must have maybe it was just um, Radio 1 at the time uh, were, were probably a bit iffy about sticking it on but right it must have got great airplay in the end to get to number one. Yeah. Recently bought another copy of the the, the reissue uh, of the of the album with the five bonus tracks. You know, you've got Hot Sun Rock, Four Percent of Something, Waterfall, Be in My Bonnet, and Rubber Bullet single version. Oh yeah. Which I hadn't listened to properly mm-hmm. uh, for a long time, if if ever. But it features the very worst edit I've ever heard. Okay. In any mix. So have a listen to now. It's it's absolutely appalling. Well we don't understand. 
National Guard. That's a pretty, pretty lousy cut, isn't it? Yeah. And, and why get rid of the best part of the song? <laughs> well, in my opinion, that's interesting because uh, Robert Christgau, I never remember how to pronounce his name, the great American oh, yes. reviewer, talked about this song, and he must have been listening to a different edit because it was a single in America and just scraped the lower reaches of the charts. Because he was mentioning that the balls and chains and balls and brains couplet was missing, but it was in. It's um, in that. It's in that. It's mix. in that version. So I, I'm not quite sure where, which which versions were which for yeah. the single edit. Certainly in the UK. I mean, I can remember that. I remember the middle bit. Yeah, it was. It on was. Radio. And on top of the pops archive footage. It's yeah, got, it's I've got the whole thing. So. Yeah, and um. On 10cc Greatest Hits, it's got the middle, yeah. the middle section. Yeah, certainly. I think the, the solo was shortened, wasn't it, from the end? I think it's. Yeah, th that's what I remember. The, the solo fades out um, on the single, rather, whereas here it kind of reaches this sort of a untidy end, doesn't it? I think sort of nat kind of yeah. natural end, as it were. Definitely. But it's a it's a cracking a cracking single, uh, Rubber Bullets. And it was one of the it was one of the tunes that. That helped turn me into a super fan of of 10cc. Yeah. Uh, such energy, and as a as a as a teenager, it was these kind of tunes that were really exciting me. Yeah. Um, rather than the, the fresh air, you know, fresh air for my mama, which in later life, you know, has, has floated to the top. Um, yeah, my friend Keith and I, you know, were big 10cc fans even virtually back in the day, and we'd <laughs> try and. Get the uh, the DJ at the school disco to put 10cc on. Apart from I'm not in love, which was of course a smoocher track, he didn't want to know. But it just about put on rubber bullets until the slow section came on. Then he'd fade it down. Yeah. So I always frustrated by it. Yeah, it's like the flood. It, it was like the, it was six form common room friendly, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. So um, we spent a lot of time talking uh, about the, the the godly and cream and the godly cream Goldman. Uh, team songs there, but perhaps we could have a a, a change of flavour. Paul, do you want to uh, give us your thoughts on on the Graham and Eric stuff that's on the album or, or on the B sides? Okay, so um, going from memory here, the two songs are "Ships Don't Disappear in the Night" yeah. and "Headline Hustler." Right, that's right. And you've also got um, "Waterfall," "Hot Sun Rock," and "Be in My Bonnet" as well. Okay, I'm kind of dismissing "Hot Sun Rock" and "Be in My Bonnet" <laughs> yeah. as throwaways, yes. as trifles. Um, "Waterfall," I love. Yeah. Um, and um, as we go through, we'll talk about 10CC B sides. And like all great bands of that era, there are fantastic B sides. Yeah. But I don't think the Stuart Goldman songs, with the exception of "Waterfall," are are great on from this bunch of they are very much we need a b-side yeah let's we've got two hours left let's bang something uh, uh, down you get that feeling yeah <laughs> I really like Headline Hustler. Yeah. Which, was it going to be a single or was a single? I think it was a single in some markets. Really? So, yeah, somebody listening will know this. I've, I've, there is it, a video I, on YouTube of it. It's filmed in Top of the Pop style. Right. It looks like it's a promo. Right. So, yeah, that's interesting. I, 
I wouldn't have bought it as uh, I wouldn't have bought it at the time as a teenage buying. It's not quite as strong as the, as the hits, but it, it's a good song. It's got that um, theme of media kind of corruption, the blackmail, blackmail yeah. theme, which comes out later. Yeah. But it's also a lovely. Uh, melody in the in the verse. I'm not so keen on the chorus. To Same be here. I, I'm exactly with you. Right. Okay. Uh, and it, it's Graham. Graham's the the more prominent voice on the first verse. I think. I've always thought of this as an Eric lead vocal, but oh, I right. hear. I think they're singing it in unison. Okay. With Graham a bit louder on verse one. Right. And Eric. I think is a bit louder on on verse two. If you watch the video on mm-hmm. YouTube, which we could we can see in a minute. Yeah. Um, Sure enough, it's Graham that the camera goes to for verse oh, one. I didn't and know I'd that. always thought of this as a yeah, same. An yeah. But listening in the car, literally on the way here to, to record the podcast, I thought the reason the voice sounds a bit weak mm-hmm. in inverted commas is because uh, I was always thinking, oh, it's not Eric's best vocal. Right. It's because it's it's Graham who oh. who is very sort of. Um, well, there's a lot of self-deprecation, isn't there, when, when Graham talks about his singing voice. He describes it as his cabaret voice. Yeah. And it's comparatively weak um, in terms of power uh, compared to the other three. Oh. I don't think the the melody and the lyrics don't seem to fit the, the style of the track. I love the style of the track. I love all the guitars. Um, I love the, the the production of it. But somehow there's a, a kind of a, a disconnect between the between that lovely that lovely melody mm. and the track. Well, this is interesting. This so maybe. Uh, Golden Cream were the kind of senior partners, I guess, within this setup songwriting, and they had they had set the agenda of pastiche, of cynicism, mm. of you know subject writing other than romantic yeah. subjects, if you like. So maybe Eric and Graham were kind of following their lead. Yeah. You know, okay, Waterfall was done before, but now they were kind of going down a different path so maybe they were doing a Kevin Lol. I don't know maybe they were just trying to give it more of an edge yeah but if, if you break it down to just the, the melody and lyrics and the chords it could work as a kind of an acoustic calypso type thing yeah it's a lovely tune isn't it, it is it's yeah. a bit bland but it's a brilliant yeah. it's a lovely melody um, and the chorus, I, it doesn't work for me. Headland Hustler, the words just don't, yeah, they not, don't scan very well. Yeah, not really a chorus, it's just a kind of placeholder to get from verse to verse almost. I agree, and uh, maybe it's just the wrong title. Yeah. If they've chosen a catchy phrase, yeah. uh, who are we to, to <laughs> criticise, you know, to the best pop writers of yeah. the 70s. But uh, yeah, it doesn't quite cut it for me. And I think it's, it's 
possibly that they chose the wrong treatment for that for that song. Mm. And ships don't disappear. I'm not, I'm not so a massive fan. They brought it back as a live song, didn't they? After Intensity C Mark II, so they must. It was a good live rocking song. Probably works better live, perhaps. Yeah. But they were. I mean, I mean, Live and Let Live. I guess you're talking about. Yeah, are you? yeah, yeah. That, that album for me was a deliberate kind of statement uh, that now that we, that Kevin Lol have left the band, yeah. um, you know, we actually wrote lots of the songs. Yeah, most true albums, guys. Waterfalls on there as well, isn't it? It is. Uh, and Kevin Lowell's songs are conspicuously absent from yeah. that record. It's yeah. one of the reasons I, it leaves a, a bit of a taste in my mouth. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I quite like it, but listening again over the last week or two, I'm convinced, and again, I'm, I'm going to be proven to be wrong on this, Paul, mm-hmm. um, having an earlier claimed that I thought I could hear the gizmo on Johnny Depp. Oh, are you it. admitting that's not true now? No, no, I'm, I'm saying, I, no. <laughs> You're I, still I, holding I, to I that. I want to know what sound it is. A, the sound on the... Yeah, that, the that's intro. A, yeah. I don't know what that is. Yeah. Uh, it could be a gizmo. The strings, is it a real string section? I'd love to know. But I want you to listen to this bit of right. Ships Don't Disappear in the Night. Okay. And there's a little uh, guitar arpeggio thing that could well be a secret appearance of, of the gizmo. The reason I'm, I'm, I'm saying this, with, with my tongue in cheek, but we've all got you know, our own ears and our ears are subjective and so on. There are songs on 10cc records that feature gizmo, obviously, and giz- the gizmo isn't credited in the instrumentation. So uh, the documentation on this sort of stuff isn't reliable. But we, we hear what we hear. And uh, yeah, just have a listen to this and see, see what you think. So yeah, those, those four notes, but one of which is a note that really is like chewing yeah. tin foil. Yeah. Yeah, what do you think? Could be. I mean, they're... We haven't got the credits in front of us, but I know there there are some synths on this album credited, mm. but that doesn't sound like a synth, does it? This one, the start of Hospital Song, I think, has that. Yeah, that's some kind that's of synth, Moog or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Uh, I think by this stage, Lol, well, around this time, Lol had his prototype, prototype gizmo. Mm. Uh, the version built by the guys from Manchester University hadn't hadn't been built yet, but they had a less reliable. Um, version that I think uh, Lol and or Kev had actually built him or themselves. So maybe it was maybe it was used here. Yeah. So why have it in the cupboard if they're not going to use it in the studio? They would have used it in the studio. Yeah, they would have. You're right. So mm, don't know. Mm. Don't know. We need to get these people in front of us, don't we, Paul? <laughs> we do. We do. You know, I find ships a little bit on the bland side, but as as is so often the case with any of these. Any of these tracks, of any of the four uh, early albums, there's always a bit that is exciting or different or wacky, right. or just off centre. And, and I absolutely love the little cameo that Kev plays on this song, where he, where you hear him go, "Better be nice to Vincent Price." <laughs> it's, it's almost random, isn't it? But it's brilliant, and and it it kind of rescues it from from a track that I would otherwise just probably skip. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you think of um, of their collaboration as a, as a four-piece songwriting team? Paul Speed Kills. Speed Kills. Yeah. 
Yeah, I like it. Uh, Me too. It's, yeah, it's them stretching out a bit. It's like an early precursor to... uh, How dare you? Well, second sitting of the last... Yeah. The supper, you know, the fact that it's a four-piece and it's a kind of slightly more traditional instrumental... It's a sort of 12-bar blues, isn't it, with other bits thrown in that, yeah. that make it sound more futuristic. Yeah, exactly. We've got the sped-up guitar. Yeah, yeah. And some brilliant harmonies. Yeah, yeah. Um, I presume it's all four, all four singing. I guess so, yeah. Some, yeah, some quite grown-up chords it's in that harmony of, as well. Yeah, it's a kind of throwback to some of the Hot Legs material, I yeah. think. It's got that... Sort of um, primitive tribal beat, yeah, primitive fundament, if you like, but with kind of experimental sounds on top. Yeah, yeah I, like I, I agree. I know it's it starts like a, 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 a sped up Neanderthal man, doesn't it? Yeah, with ambient drums, which is a, an oddity for this album because right. most of the drums are, are incredibly close mic'd, right? And, right, yeah, and on the intro of this, you can actually hear the room, right? Um, so maybe maybe they were harking deliberately harking back to Neanderthal man. Yeah, I wonder whether this was an early recording as well, possibly. It could but well have been. I don't really know. I like it. I like the. Um, there's an edge to the harmonies that make it really, really unusual. This one. Yeah. Um, and it's insistent. It reminds me of of How Dare You, the track How Dare You. You're right. Yes. I, um, I think you, melodically yeah. and chord-wise, there's kind of similarities. There's just a little less density in the lyrics. Well, there's very few lyrics. I suppose that's yeah. another way of looking at it. And and that actually gives it a bit of space. You know, because it. You know this relentless wordplay can can be a little bit um, yeah. obtrusive at times so here it's just a music a track of music yeah and, and they're having it they're having a breather aren't they just probably it probably started in the back of a taxi as a, as a, a kind of a rap or a jam didn't yeah they? possibly yeah and then they just decided to throw it down and mm. I, I i really do like the track it's unusual and and it's kind of almost like a, a palate cleanser mm. uh for 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 the second half, uh, I suppose. Funny, a song that I loved as a as a teenager, but that I've I've got less fond of over the years, is Hospital Song. And I think I probably really liked it as a kid because it had the word piss in it, <laughs> like Magic Roundabout by Jasper Carrot. Right. Know. Yeah. You know, it, it was it kind of went round the 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 fourth form classroom just because it had a swear word in it. Yeah. Where do you stand on hospital song? Mm, yeah, it's a little. It's got some nice, nice. The, some of the tunes are really nice. Yeah. Da, 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 da. It's a really nice. I love that. Yeah. And the chorus is very strong. 
Yeah, I mean, well, it, I get up. yeah, it is what it is. You know, it's quite a rocking performance by Lowell. Yeah, um, and he sounds like he's got a slightly sore throat for this vocal, but it works really, really well. There's a, a wonderful bit of vocal when he goes, a hypodermic needle and a graph, and you kind of hear that. It's, it's brilliant. Maybe he's doing it on purpose just so he sounds ill. Yeah, maybe. But it, it's, it's a great vocal, I think. When I go to that CD ward up in the sky, you'll be waiting with a hypodermic needle and a graph. Yeah. Annoying, uh, you know, to a, someone who doesn't love 10cc in the same way that we do, perhaps. Yeah, I like it. I put it in the top half of the album. I think. Would you? Yeah, I would, yeah. Um, I prefer... Uh, Kevin Lowell's other song about being ill. Oh, what's that? Get Well Soon. Oh, yeah, from Freeze Frame. Yeah, I, I think that's a beautiful uh, piece with a, a wonderful Kev vocal. Uh, we, can, we can talk about that after a future podcast. I haven't heard that for a long time, that um, song. Is that the one with Paul McCartney? On? It is, yeah. yeah. Um, that's a great track. So maybe there were, there were certain themes that Kevin Lowell would just keep revisiting. Mm. Maybe they were ill a lot. Well, I think uh, during that, when they had a tour as Hot Legs, that was an aborted tour. Uh, was it Was it one of our guys who got ill or was it one of the Moody Blues who got ill when they were supporting the Moody Blues? I think it might have been that reason that the tour was cancelled. Okay. Somebody would know, but that kind of curtailed their early live experience, I think. Mm. The Moody Blues, just you mentioning them. Yeah. I was thinking the other day that Waterfall would have been a great tune for Moody Blues. Yeah. Don't you yeah, think? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So that, that almost completes uh, the album, but the, the elephant in the room still hasn't really been discussed. Chef, my mama. Oh, what a track. I mean, we just said that Dean and I was the best track, but I mean, this is as good. Phenomenal. Uh, really, really fantastic. And I think I'm right in saying it's the only Godly Cream Stewart composition in the whole of the 10cc canon. Yeah, I think you're right. Although, again, the hot, some of the hot leg stuff was Godly Cream Stewart. Yeah. Um, of course, this track started out as you didn't like it because you didn't think of it, hmm. which was like the middle of the track. Yeah. Uh, with a few, um, just the very end of that track has sort of the, the very germ of the wonderful kind of chords during the main section of the finished track.
So I wonder whether that was more an Eric track. Certainly the, the bulk of this song, you know, the verses, sounds more like Godly and Cream. Yeah. I don't know for sure. And what's this song about? It's like a mafia lament. Yeah, Is the mama like, you know, you, the godfather or... Let's try and dig into these lyrics if we can. What do you think the song could be about then? Well, the way I read it is uh, a young man who's tiring of living at home in uh, in the sort of urban ethnic cocktail that's the Bronx, mm. and uh, he, he's he wants to break away, and it's a massive culture shock when he does. Um, he wants to give his mum fresh air wants to give her a break um and then ultimately at the end of the song it, it seems that his his mum's passed away possibly um because she can't keep up with the, the rising cost of living the cost of living in dreams is rising like the crime wave your take well i don't know where i don't i'm just getting this godfather like vibe i mean it's, it's quite a sweet rendering you're talking about <laughs> um, you know actual the mother and may, maybe it is i'm just all the references to crime and mm. the crime wave I, I really don't know it's funny we just think it i mean this is a really beautiful song and it's powerfully sung well, and we don't know vocal. what it's about <laughs> yeah and the, the bowery seems to have been an area a street um, that really went down Downhill, didn't yeah, it? that was a really poor not area literally. in Ma in Manhattan. Yeah. So that's not the Bronx, but then, yeah, I'm not very up on my New York geography, but it's clearly the poorer areas of New York that are being cited here. Um, so powerfully sung by Kev, isn't it? Oh, it it's it, it's a, just an amazing vocal, and he's he's pulled out so many of those soulful vocals, hasn't he? He has, but this is one of the first ones uh, on material that had some kind of heft behind it. Because mm. the Hot Legs, we'll talk about Hot Legs another time, and and there were some beautiful vocals there. But he's got a, a really powerful band behind him now, and that makes yeah. transforms the sound. You've seen the live clip of their 1974 concert. Yeah. This is a standout track. Oh man, he sings that, sings the hell out of this track. It's brilliant. So say one and so say all. Be what you gotta be, don't be nothing at all. Lyrically, very, very interesting, and, and it's true of a lot of 10cc songs. Is that they, they seem to be dropping so many American references yeah. and very few English references. Right. Slang tends to be American. Yeah. The references tend to be American. Um, I wonder if that was just harking back to the kind of music that they were really into listening to in the 50s. Mm. Um, 
But uh, one of the, the key things for me that make this uh, such happy, re repeated listening for me is the, the, the wonderful piano sounds at the start. It's kind of a Brian Wilson Pet Sounds-esque combination of two sounds, I think. Is it through a Leslie? Is it the piano? I think, I think it is. I think it's an acoustic piano and an electric piano. That's okay. what, what my ears are telling right. me. But the kind of... At some points, they're combined at a molecular level, right. just like Brian was doing on, on, on that album, um, to create a new sound. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's really, really inventive and fantastic. And it's, there's a sense of suspense and mystery to that intro. And I can't remember whether I mentioned this before, but... Um, the approach to the tagline, you know, my mama, that that seems resemblant to me of Surf's Up, the approach to the Comminated Ruins domino, yeah, which is really unusual. Totally. The first time I heard it, it kind of reminded me of it. I don't know whether that's deliberate or whether it's even there. But I've always thought of this tune as, as uh, a kind of a cousin of Surf's Up. Oh, okay. Somewhere in Hollywood as well. Yeah. Um, and... They, on our next podcast, we'll, we'll look at somewhere in Hollywood uh, in a lot of detail, I hope. Yeah. Uh, that, and that follows a lot of the patterns of, of the track Surf's Up. Oh, okay. Musically, stylistically and lyrically as well. Mm. Um, but yeah, uh, that's, I think, one of, the, one of the reasons that I love Fresh Air for My Mama so, so much. I think they deliberately placed it last on the album. Yeah. Does it fit the album? Well, it does because it's their first album and they've got to put their best songs on it. Mm. Uh, the album is... It doesn't really cohere in the way that some of the later albums do and I don't know whether they gave much thought to the running order or not, but I would certainly have put Fresh Air for My Mama as a last track. It's nailed on, isn't it? That's, yeah. As, as the last track on the album. Yeah. So yeah. a, a sort of a great introductory record showing the sort of promise of the band. But mm. for me, the high points very much the Dean and I, Fresh Air for My Mama, yeah. and the two hit singles, wonderful. The rest of it is all over the place, but I mean, it's, it's unique. Yeah, they're having some fun recording it, aren't they? Yeah, it uh, was recorded apparently in three weeks. Mm. Maybe not the sort of original singles, but... Uh, you can almost, you, you can sense that, can't you? Yeah, it's almost... Not in, not in, in terms of shoddiness, because it isn't no, shoddy. No, no, There's a, a kind of frenetic fun going on. Yes, yeah. Yeah, they're not thinking about it, they're just doing it. They're banging it. the ideas and, down, and that, aren't they? that works, you know, absolutely brilliantly. That's right. And, and still, at this point, predominantly a, a guitar band. There isn't much in the way of, of keyboard playing. Yeah. Let's ignore Fresh Air for My Mama. Yeah, right. There's okay. a bit of piano on rubber bullets. Ding, 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 ding. There's those the yeah. kind of high chords in the, in the chorus. But otherwise, it's, it's mainly guitar, drums and bass. Mm. Um, 
And, and of course, as we go into the second album, Sheet Music, there's a whole added lexicon of, of instrumentation being being layered. So as a guitar as a guitar band album, uh, it's wonderfully inventive. It doesn't sound like rhythm and blues. It doesn't sound like rock. It sounds like 10CC. Yeah, people are always throwing the comparison with Frank Zappa at 10CC. Definitely. I must admit, I, I, on my hands up here, I don't know. I've only got one album of his, Hot Rats. Yeah, and I don't I've got know. two. I've okay. got that and Shake Your Booty. Does that, well, do either of those sound like 10CC to Definitely, you? definitely. Because oh, they you, do? Okay. Yeah, you've got... Um, Virtuoso mu- musicianship, yeah, cheeky humour, yeah, often naughty, humour. verging on the puerile, perhaps more so in Zappa's case. Yeah, um, production-wise, similar. Okay, you've got that dry, close mic sort of sound, a twinkle in its eye, smile on its face. Uh, you know, brilliant guitar work. Yeah, I, th- I think uh, it's got to be Zappa, Beatles, Beach Boys, hasn't okay. it? And as the main influence. Bonzo Dog Doodah Band. I'm not, I'm not so familiar with the Bonzo's work. I'm, I know you are. Well, only only to a degree, but again, from what I've heard, there's there's crossover. I mean, yeah. I think there's a lot more meat and depth in 10 CC than the Bonzo's, to, yeah. to my ears, although I know people love them very much. But um, Bonzo's and Hot Legs, do you think they're more similar? Well, look, we'll come back to the Hot Legs, but I th- the, the heart of the Hot Legs record, to me, is the beautiful ballads yeah. with the kind of novelty stuff tacked on mm. whereas I think the Bonzos are, are a novelty act through and through yeah, you know about yeah how can Viv be funny <laughs> yeah we'll do that one yeah 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 exactly that's it is what it is but um yeah, yeah. whereas humor was is an integral part of 10cc isn't it but it's not it's not their raison d'etre no and in fact when it threatens to kind of uh, submerge the musicality that's when I like them a little bit less mm. but um, when it's in balance, yeah. it's fantastic. Yeah. When you've got, uh, like with the next album, when you've got the comedy shoulder-to-shoulder uh, shoulder with Deadly Serious, yeah. that's a wonderful dynamic, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Marvellous. I'm enjoying uh, getting stuck into this band. Yeah. Paul, we've been, we've been uh, dancing around the subject for 11 weeks. Yeah, we've been out on the fringes, and, <laughs> and now we're back in yeah. at the mothership. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, I hope... Um, You've enjoyed our first venture into 10cc land, uh, folks. We've certainly enjoyed it. Uh, but we're, we're really looking forward to uh, delving into what is one of my favourite albums of all time. We'll, we'll talk about sheet music next time. Thank you. See you next time. Cheers. been listening to the consequences podcast produced by paul mcnulty and sean mccreevy thanks for listening